Why settle for just living a good life when you can live a life optimized to achieve your human potential? Learn all the hacks that will transform your life from average to extraordinary. Welcome to Life Optimized with functional medicine expert, Dr. Neil Palvin. Hey, everybody. This is Dr. Neil Palvin. We're ready for another really cool episode of Life Optimized Podcast. We're joined. I'm very, really honored to catch him, uh, Dr. Kyle Gillette. And he is a specialist in hormones and obesity medicine. Dr. Gillette provides holistic individualized care to his patients. His practice includes preventative medicine, aesthetics, sports medicine, hormone optimization, obstetrics, and infertility, integrative medicine, and precision medicine, including genomics. He believes that each human is a unique creation that requires attention to their body, mind, and soul to achieve optimal health. He enjoys caring for others using shared decision-making and an evidence-based patient-centered approach. He's active in obesity medicine organizations and firmly believes food is medicine and exercise is medicine. Dr. Gillette describes the six pillars of health, exercise, diet, sleep, stress, sunlight, and spirit. These are more powerful than any medication or supplement. He enjoys spending time outdoors on the farm with his wife, two sons, and of course, the two wolfhounds. So again, Dr. Gillette, thanks for coming on. I appreciate it. I know you're insanely busy right now, but we're going to do some really kind of fun and deep dive at the same time. We're going to do some talking about some weight loss and obesity medicine, which has a lot of different topics right now going viral at this point. And then we're going to answer all those questions that we get from, I know I get them from patients in terms of uh, hormones, some hormone balancing in terms of males and females. And then we're going to I do some answer some questions that we always that I'm, I'm getting when, when people heard I was speaking with you. So again, thanks for coming on. It'll be it's a pleasure that you came on. So first question, you're the obesity medicine expert. So my first question to you, and I kind of when patients ask you, or I'm sure you get to talk to all the time, when somebody asks you, is there a diet I should be on? I'm trying to lose weight. Is there one diet that I should be on? Is it paleo? Is it vegan? Is it Mediterranean? Or is it just heart being healthy, watching the calories, exercise? Is it that simple? Or is there one diet that people must be on to uh, start that weight loss process for them? First of all, thank you for having me, Dr. Paulvin. The best diet, of course, is one that a individual can adhere to. So it's not really a diet at all. It is a habitual effort to eat as reasonably healthy as possible. And by healthy, I mean nutrient dense and in general isocaloric if someone's at a healthy body composition, but one diet habit that they can adhere to the rest of their life. So it's not really a temporizing measure. Now, of course, there is certainly merit to temporary diets for various pathologies. But when I think about, you know, the ideal diet for someone, Myself might be a good example. Anybody is a good example. You just pick someone. And for myself, reducing liquid calories has really helped and reducing processed foods and increasing whole foods has helped. For some people, you see fantastic success on more restrictive diets. But in general, I am a fan of the least restrictive diet possible within the bounds of that person's health. When you're evaluating somebody who's concerned with their weight, I obviously, based on your background, you're looking at the whole picture. It's not just their weight. When you're looking at somebody's labs, are you looking at something specific? Or is it, are you looking at their, their, 
how much are you a believer in insulin resistance and weight loss? I know that's become a huge debate now. How much is it just calorie in, calorie out versus insulin resistance and fasting, which I know you've been had your opinions on one where is fasting any better than other caloric restriction type, other just being healthy and exercising. So what are you looking for in somebody's lab work that, or the mayor may not give you some ideas of what's going on? Yeah. There are several things that I look at, but you want to look at everything. So if you were to put this question in an analogy, it's like asking, uh, you know, you're trying to become the best football player, whether American football or real football, by the way, are you looking at power? Are you trying to concentrate on that? Are you looking at nutrition? Are you looking at speed? Are you looking at plyos and flexibility? Conversely in health, I'm looking at all of it. So I'm looking at the calories themselves. You're looking at the body composition. Often that's like a DEXA scan. That's not just looking at bone density, but other parameters as well. And then you're looking at insulin resistance. I still think that insulin resistance is one of the main. Now, whether or not it's the chicken or the egg, it doesn't really matter because you're going to treat it either way. You might treat it with just lifestyle measures, especially if it's not severe, but that's just one of the things that you look at. I like to look at the gut brain axis. I like to look at the adipose brain axis. And of course, I like to look at sex hormones as well. I have a couple of points I want to highlight for people listening. So the first thing you mentioned was a DEXA scan. That is something probably a year ago that only people who knew about DEXA scans were patients that you mentioned were looking at osteoporosis. Now we see I'm prescribed for my patients. So and are you looking at visceral fat? Is that why you're ordering it? Are you looking for other things as well? You want to explain what your thought process is mentioning a DEXA scan? Yeah. You want to look at fat-free mass, and then you also want to look at uh, visceral body fat. Basically what it is, it's radiographs or x-rays, and you try to take them. You know, It's not the gold standard of diagnosis. It's not an autopsy or an MRI. But within the same individual, if you get one, let's say every year or even every two years, you can track that individual's progress relative to past DEXA scans. You do, do them in the morning. You're also like limited on what you can hydrate when you can't hydrate because water can show up as lean body mass as well. But I guess the actionable takeaway from a DEXA scan is that you want to have a body composition that is ideal. That's kind of different for biologic males and females. And then you also want to have visceral fat. Usually that is less than 1% of your total fat. There we go. Visceral fat has a lot of side effects. It has caused inflammation and something we can discuss a little bit further on. You also mentioned again, so you did mention you believe in interlistens. I mean, I, I has effect in this whole overall program here. Or now when you're looking at somebody with insulin resistance, how are you treating them? There's a, again, this, this is where the, I, there's such huge debates. Is it just weight loss? Is it fasting, which we'll get into in a minute? Are you somebody who's hopping on the medications, things like Ozempic and Wagovi? Where do you fall on in your protocol or your algorithm in your brain when you're looking at somebody who's coming into you for obesity? For the individual that has insulin resistance, you don't just treat the insulin resistance. For example, you know, diabetics that we put in the hospital with severe insulin resistance, let's say they're on uh, 200 units a day, which is basically just a really high dose. You put them on IV insulin. There's a bunch of names for these IV insulins, but that actually improves insulin sensitivity is switching them from subcutaneous to IV insulin. So when they discharge the hospital, often they need less insulin. So does that help with weight loss? No. Are they much more insulin sensitive? Yes, but often they gain weight from that. So one way to think about insulin resistance is it helps with nutrient partitioning. 
There's a difference, of course, in between like the thermodynamic caloric intake and the lipolysis. So a lot of fat burners help with lipolysis. Insulin sensitizers, whether it's Ozempic, whether it's berberine, whether it's metformin, in certain cells, whether it's GLUT2 or GLUT4, I think they actually renamed GLUT4. But anyway, these yeah. different... Yeah. These different no, there. there you go. I yeah. Anyway, I'm so used to saying it that I just kind of still say it, but I do believe they renamed that receptor that's in the liver and the muscle cells. But basically it makes it easier to take nutrients into the cell so that when you do exercise, it becomes easier. However, there's positive feedback. So if you exercise more or do like more fasting or whatnot, then it makes it even easier. And what a positive feedback means is when you start doing something, it becomes even easier. So depending on how hard the lifestyle inter intervention will be, I look at insulin sensitizers as a tool to get there. Most often I use the analogy of quicksand, someone stuck in the insulin resistance quicksand. Some people, even if they're the same depth stuck, are going to be able to dig out easier, whether that has to do with like life situation or another variable. But I'm a fan of using tools. I think that it's much easier. If I was stuck in quicksand, I would certainly want a shovel. Yeah, good analogy. And then, so I mean, again, I agree with you. I think I'm, everything is kind of a comprehensive program, but you need to kind of to play on both sides of the fence and kind of give them immediate help and kind of work for it. And they have to also make lifestyle change. I've seen all your social media and on the podcast, you're an extreme advocate for a lifestyle change because the medicines that are out there, be it testosterone or, or Rogovia or whatever we're talking about, are only going to work as well and not work if you don't have that lifestyle changes. So if there's one or two lifestyle changes, and I feel like I have an idea what you're going to answer here, that patients can make initially to be both healthy in terms of their weight and overall, what is that important lifestyle change or even two that you recommend to patients all the time? Diet and exercise are number one and number two. It's hard to put anything before that. Of course, if one of the other lifestyle pillars or, you know, if something else is wrong, even if it's just like your someone in your household is struggling, it can set off a domino effect to knock down all the other lifestyle interventions. However, with diet, we kind of mentioned that earlier on, you want to find like an eating style that you can adhere to that is as healthy as possible and that you also like or learn to like. And then for example, for myself, I love eating spinach and Greek yogurt and eggs. For some people, those don't work. You know, you can talk about oxalates, you can talk about saturated fats and eggs. You can talk about the casein and the yogurt, but you know, there's risks and benefits to everything. Those are things that I like to incorporate in my diet often. And then as far as like the second intervention exercise, I would say anaerobic and aerobic exercise at ideally every day if possible, even if it's just a bit of zone two for, you know, 30 minutes, but at least three times a week. Okay. So we cut, you, you hit on something we're going to talk about later, but you brought it up. So let's I talk about it now. I'm a huge fan of zone two. Again, I, I, I think now patient, again, now that everybody's a, a lot of people have wearables now. Um, so there's patients now are not only just not the, what exercise you're doing or it's how long you're doing it, how high your heart rate is getting, how hard of a workout you're getting. And you need, like you said, you need to diversify. There's still some debate depending, again, depends who you talk to. Do you just need, do you need anaerobic, anaerobic? Is it just anaerobic? It's what do you need. Is it all resistance-based versus cardio? There's a little bit different, but we know that. So again, I'm curious to see how you, again, it sounds like you recommend a split. You recommend multiple days a week. But it's, so but I wanted you to explain 
What is the importance of zone two? Are you encouraging 90 minutes, 120 minutes? It's just what you can get. And I mean, it's become so in the last, again, it's become more and more out there now and more important. So explain the importance of zone two. Here's a couple of rules of thumb with zone two. By the way, zone two is particularly good for mitochondrial health. Um, there's even like comparable levels of uh, mitochondrial number and function. When you look at elite athletes and young children and young children, of course, have lots of energy as well. And that's also one of the uh, like slowing aging axes. But with zone two, I would say the law of diminishing returns applies with this as it does with many things in medicine and science. You want to get at least 90 minutes is 120 or even 180 per week objectively better. Yes. And it is significantly better than 90 minutes. You just have to choose a cutoff at some point. And I choose that cutoff around, you know, 60 minutes is obviously better than zero as well. But I would say aiming for 90 minutes of zone two should be doable for most people because you can do other things like listen to podcasts while you do them. Other things to think about, the worse your mitochondrial health and also the least you like doing cardio, the more important zone two is for you. Ideally, you have at least one day a week of very vigorous exercise, more vigorous than zone two, whether that's four or five or six or whatnot is kind of debatable but ideally at least one time a week. So the less you like doing that, the more important zone two is. Conversely for resistance training, the less your lean body mass or the more metabolic issues you have, you know, like the lower your daily caloric intake, whether that's due to non-activity thermogenesis being low or whether that's due to just less metabolically active tissue that includes both brown and beige fat and muscle cells, then I would say resistance training is more important for that group of people. For people going back to zone two, for second, patients listening out or people listening out there, you could, if you could have a heart rate monitor or a Garmin and see exactly where that's great. The simple rule of thumb, at least that I tell patients, if you could, you can still have a conversation, it's a little bit harder, but you, that's when you're in zone two. If you're huffing and puffing, um, like you're in your Barry's class or something, that's not zone two. And then that's a, right now, like you said, in terms of mitochondrial and exercise performance, just the links now are just growing. And it's something, again, very simple, could cost nothing. So you mentioned mitochondria and I am a mitochondria junkie now with my patients. I, between, again, you could do things like sleep and exercise. I have a lot of patients see me for peptides and also can work on mitochondria, but, and, and it's so important now because of the link. Now we're finding mitochondria from everything from infertility to Alzheimer's. So mitochondrial health is just so important. Is that part of, I assume basically again talking about sunlight and as well as exercise, I assume that's part of what you recommend for patients, no matter what they're seeing you for. Absolutely. And you know, some people can't get good sunlight. I consider that one of the pillars of health, but that also encompasses just being outdoors, heat exposure, cold exposure, which are topics we'll probably go into at a different time, but even just using 670 nanometer light, which is like a shade of red light can help most of the studies are on mitochondria in the eye, in the retina of the eye. So even doing a protocol that occasionally I'll have patients on that, especially if they have low sunlight exposure, but there's other benefits to mitochondrial like targeting in general. Many people are familiar with creatine, which I think of as the backup fuel tank of the mitochondria, the mitochondria being the powerhouse of the cell or the engine of the race car. And then I'm sure that your audience is probably familiar with like other mitochondrial interventions. Some people ask me about peptides like MOTC people like to talk about, which, you know, there's definitely some pros and cons, but my go-tos for mitochondria is creatine as a backup fuel tank, carnitine as the fuel pump or the insulator, and then NAD precursors, whether it's NAD plus or NMN or NR or even niacin can lead to more downstream effects. Coenzyme Q10 
And then some people just like to talk about the adenosine to ATP pathway as well. So there's quite a bit to think about when it comes to mitochondrial optimization. You hit on a lot of them in red light and again, exercise and sleep are the easier ones. And there's some that have a lot more data than others. I mean, MitoQ and CoQ10 have the NEDs are getting there. I love MOTC personally and my patients tend to, but again, the data is in the, at least in humans is not there yet, but I get patients like it was once a week, but we always go back to that one. So we've kind of jumped a little bit ahead. So I want to go back into the nutrition a little bit. I know I've heard you on other podcasts. So I have to ask. So in terms of fasting, when somebody, when a patient asks you about fasting, what do you let them know about? Is it in terms of health and weight loss? I mean, there's a, there's a whole group of that's, we don't have to go deep dive into it, but I love your insight. Most of the conversations that I have around fasting have to do with longevity and like induction of hormesis. So downregulation of mTOR, downregulation of like subsequent pathways, growth pathways like uh, PI3K, AKT, IGF pathways. And fasting kind of hits all of those reasons, but some people are also poor candidates for fasting. For example, perhaps they have a diagnosis like hypothalamic amenorrhea, perhaps they do not have enough leptin signaling, perhaps, or they have too much, you know, kind of just depends on the individual. If they're looking for hormesis and activation of CERT genes, like CERT1, CERT2, which by the way, those are basically just genes that turn off the overgrowth of cell turnover. So it kind of puts you into like a mini hibernation. It can be beneficial for some people because theoretically, and in many like non-human studies, it decreases the incidence of cancer. And then in a lot of human studies, it has hormonal benefits. IGF-1 is insulin-like growth factor one. Think of it in layman's terms, as the addition of your insulin and your growth hormone. And you want more of that to be signaled during the times that you need it, like exercise, and less of it signaled during the other times so that you don't turn over your cells faster than you would like to. So yeah, most of the time they ask about it in the context of longevity. And for some people it can be beneficial, but for most people, for whatever reason, even if it's just social reasons, it's not a big enough positive to do. Some people love intermittent fasting. Some people love like 24 hour fasts. I would say for 95% of people, myself included, it's just not feasible with my lifestyle. And there's other things that can be done with similar benefit. Okay. I agree. I used to be on one side and the data and again, my lifestyle has kind of pivoted me the other way. So I'm glad to hear you say that. So kind of going back again. So we talked about body fat and visceral fat. What is your, again, this is a question I got to ask to ask you is what is your opinion on the non-DEXA scan measures of visceral fat and body fat index and things like that? I don't want to name certain brands out there. There's some that are bigger than others. I know they're not as accurate as a DEXA scan or MRI, but do you find them viable at all? Or is that something that patients should just kind of use as a, a vague marker? In general, the markers that I use, there are several that are out there. I don't believe any of them are like clinically validated tools. I'm not sure if there's some that are FDA approved or not, but DEXA scans are so affordable. I would venture to say in any major city, you can go and cash price DEXA scan, including body composition and visceral fat for less than hundred dollars. So I would just say that like the prevalence of that tool and the relative like validity of it, it just kind of outcompetes any other option. So it's hard to compete with that. When you're doing a screening test, you want to, of course, to be like relatively low price. And then you want to have an actionable item that you can do after doing the test. So there's plenty of things that we can do. 
I would mention the fibra scan. So there's different scans that you can do on your liver to assess the stages of liver disease, like fatty liver disease. So I would say for someone with a lot of visceral body fat, something like a fibra scan would be a really good idea. I've heard that it's, it's, it's getting, again, it's available. I'm in Manhattan. So nothing is cheap and expensive. You got to <laughs> sure. add like a 20% New York fee here. I'm not sure where you're based out of, but uh, it's still relatively inexpensive compared to what it costs for a meal here. So yeah, I yeah. recommend the DEXA scan. So we're going to do this and we're going to jump into some other stuff in terms of testosterone here. So you mentioned leptin and leptin has kind of had its ups and downs in terms of where people uh, are you leptin resistant? Are you not leptin resistant? Is that something that is something you need to be checking in somebody who has a problem who can't quote, and now I'm using air quotes, can't lose weight, but is that is leptin? Well, okay, I'll add two parts to it. A is leptin resistance something that's really, that you, has a lot of validity. I haven't found much literature behind it specifically. And then are there patients who in reality can't lose weight? And is there something used in those types of patients? I guess is the best way to ask that question. Yeah. So the first part of the question, I do think that leptin is clinically significant in some cases, but not necessarily in many cases, it does help paint a picture. It's obviously very important that you're fasting for a very specific number of hours before getting your leptin checked. If you look at individuals of different BMIs, you see different leptins and often it's increasing, which is kind of paradoxical because you think that it would be, you know, like a satiety hormone, but in some individuals at very high weights, especially individuals that have high triglycerides, which is the basic unit of fat in the blood, whereas glucose is the basic carb in the blood. They tend to have more leptin resistance. Sometimes these people are also deficient in an omega-3 called EPA. Now, this is just kind of like one axis. It's not an all or nothing thing, but there's no all or nothing thing, not even insulin resistance. So in some cases, it's clinically significant. Um, and uh, what was the second part of the question? Do you believe that there's patients who are doing everything they're supposed to and they just can't lose weight? I hear that probably every day. I'm sure you do as well. So is there something, something that need a hormonal kickstart, people say, or is that just kind of a, I don't say excuse, but just something they should be doing things harder than they are? Very common to hear that. And I think when a patient does tell us something like that, um, what we try to do in those cases is listen to the patient. It's called motivational interviewing. So you don't tell the patient what they have or have not been doing. Often these patients are adherent, also known as like compliant, but adherent is the like better word for that. They've been tracking their calories to the best of their ability. They've been exercising and tracking those calories to the best of their ability. And perhaps they've even been taking their GLP-1 receptor agonist um, consistently at the right dose with the right technique, and they still haven't lost weight. So, you know, this is kind of like the resistant population, even when they have the tools present, perhaps it's not the right tool. Perhaps they need a bit more of a backhoe rather than a shovel, but a lot of times maybe it's not quite the same quicksand. Maybe there's something else in the lifestyle pillars. For example, maybe something is socially off, something with mental health, something that makes the situation harder to where you would want to address that first and then add in more of the metabolic or hormonal tools. Exactly. So I'd love to do a deeper dive into this, but I want to hop over and talk about some testosterone and estrogen. They're interrelated. I feel that both men and women need testosterone and estrogen. I think a traditional old school physician believes men don't need estrogen. Females don't really, I've never, they don't talk to them about the needs for testosterone. I don't know if you share that opinion. 
And then the way that it's managed, I think, is just either you have TR, these online TRT clinics now where they're just, everybody gets testosterone, you get testosterone, it's like Oprah, you get testosterone, you get testosterone and some anastrozole, or their doctor just talks them, they get nothing. So how, what is your feeling on when you're evaluating somebody who's coming to you to discuss, uh, let's say a male, keep it simple initially, who's looking and says, I want testosterone. My buddy at the gym says testosterone is awesome. I should be doing it. I'm 36 years old. What are you telling that patient? What are you looking for? How are you starting that patient off? Yeah. Again, this is a pretty good case for motivational interviewing. It does take a bit more time. It's good to not only develop our listening skills to the patients, also, you know, whatever other staff members interacting with them, whether it's a dietitian or a health coach or a chiropractor or a naturopath or whoever else we have as a member of our interdisciplinary team, trying to get an idea of why the patient sought out something. Defining what testosterone does is kind of like defining what thyroid hormone does. Thyroid hormone, obviously, like people are well aware, it does many more things other than temperature regulation. And people are now becoming aware that testosterone does many more things other than lean body mass accrual. For example, making effort feel good and being like closely related to the dopaminergic signaling system. So for that individual, perhaps he is feeling significantly different than 20 years before. And most often I would say there is something that can be naturally optimized. Perhaps that individual has developed a bit of prediabetes or insulin resistance or even diabetes, but getting a, a full history with all of that subjective information with objective information, usually starting with labs that are blood tests and then talking with the patient about them as the first step. So I would say there is a lot of seeking out of androgens. If you look at the social trends and seeking of performance enhancing drugs, those trends are crazy. There are many, many other things that you can do, including lifestyle interventions, but other tools too, that can achieve those same goals. So really thousand foot view, we find out what the patient's goal is usually by just listening well and asking them. And then we help them achieve those goals safely, often without the use of what they're looking for, but often with the use of tools. I couldn't agree more. So let's, I want to, so in terms of lab work, again, this is the difference between somebody who does some functional and big picture view versus kind of the old school is when you're looking at somebody's labs, first in terms of testosterone, I want people to know what's out there. You're not, are you, there are different types of labs that are out there. Again, we're not just looking at total testosterone. Are you looking at what is the most important day? I know everything kind of goes into a picture. You have free testosterone, you have bioavailable testosterone, sex hormone bonding globulin. We can look at insulin, prolactin. I mean, there's so many different tests that a lot of patients and doctors are not looking at. And also patients always look at a number. So my first question, what labs are you is, are the most important to you in getting that opinion? And secondly, do you, again, what I find with patients now is that they not, some patients just want to have symptoms improve. And then you said in terms of sports performance and quote unquote life optimization, they want to have, they want to be at 900. They want to be at their total to be a thousand whatever they, their goal is. It's, that's not necessary. So, but again, in terms of lab work, what is the most important to you in terms of breaking out a treatment process? The most important labs would be total and free testosterone or just total and SHBG. And you can calculate a free testosterone Often free testosterone labs are not extremely accurate and the same for estradiol labs. If they're done with tests called immunoassays, if you talk to your doctor about it, they can figure out what the best test is for you. Usually if the levels are very low, 
I also consider FSH and LH essential tests as well. You want to see if it's your testosterone release is being suppressed. And estradiol is an essential test too, since it can be directly converted from testosterone and it um, has significant feedback inhibition as well. So I consider all those things essential. There's many other things that can be ordered, but as a general rule of thumb, if your total testosterone is 600 and your free testosterone is 15, both nanograms per mil, by the way, I would consider that optimal. And you absolutely do not see that significant of an increase in athletic performance going from a naturally optimized 600 to a naturally optimized 900. So for, pe for people who don't know, if you're looking at your labs or that people are getting their own labs, SHBG is sex hormone binding globulin. It's what acts, I call it the diet. Is quicksand. I have my docs where it's where the hormones are bound and not, it's like sitting there doing nothing. It's just hanging out, doing work. You want free, which we both just talked about free testosterone. That's the one the hormone that's doing the work. So a lot of the sex hormone binding globulin supplements, you mentioned natural treatments that are out there. There's been certain products that have for, it's become very wide known because of certain podcasts. And are you a believer that is that something you're working on um, initially in somebody who has low testosterone and, and either has an elevated and has an elevated SHBG, or is that not one of your first target with the natural supplements when you're starting to work on some is work on somebody with low testosterone? Often it is a target. I would say for the relatively healthy, active population that does a lot of cardio, cardio increases SHBG or has a low carb diet, carbohydrates decrease SHBG. So low carb diets can increase it or just the aging individual with age SHBG goes up pretty significantly. For those individuals, often I do work on naturally decreasing SHBG, although it is more common to see individuals with too low of SHBG, for example, below 20. And for those individuals, the cause of a low, a low total testosterone often is the low SHBG. They can be producing plenty of testosterone, but SHBG helps bind it up to prevent metabolism. So what are your favorite go-to supplements? I mean, I, I, that you use, bless you, uh, that what are the favorite go-to natural supplements that you're using in patients to help elevate testosterone? There's a bunch out there right now. I love L-carnitine, my second favorite peptide only to insulin. Carnitine is a very small peptide. It's just two amino acids that we briefly touched on when we talked about mitochondria. What that does is it increases the density of the androgen receptor. So the sensitivity can't be changed unless we start to do that with CRISPR someday. But the density of the androgen receptor in the cytoplasm will bind more testosterone, even at the same level. So it makes you feel your testosterone more. All right. Yep. Carnitine has so many benefits between muscle and brain. It's something that should be part of, and mitochondria helps. We talk about the benefit of mitochondria health, but so carnitine definitely should be part of your supplement routine, but can, what other supplements are you using? I like injectable L-carnitine as well, but we'll, we'll go on to some other ones. Creatine is one of my favorites. Again, creatine is kind of similar to carnitine. It's hard to get an optimal level just through diet. So it's one of those cases where yes, you can get some through your diet and synthesize some as well but it can be particularly helpful. Creatine can also help with amino acid synthesis. It can also help with methyl donation and many other things. And then I'd say another one of my, and again, it kind of depends on what you mean by natural supplements, because a lot of things are synthesized and they're not necessarily natural, but they are a supplement. And some medications are very natural, but you know, there's a lot of crossover between the two. But yeah, another one of my favorites is omega-3s, um, specifically things with content of EPA and DHA. I would say those are like every individual should 
ask themselves, do I need to be taking carnitine? Do I need to be taking creatine? Do I need to optimize my omegas? And unless they're eating like a ton of salmon or another really good omega source, they probably need to consider those three. Couple points. So are you a proponent of creatine monohydrate? Are you three, five grams? Is that your ballpark with patients? Again, how high dose are you going with the omega threes? Are you three grams? How high are you going? Do you do? And then the last question, because I get, I get asked all the time, are you a, a, a mega quant guy where you're doing the split products of all their different types of uh, fish, their uh, omega three, omega six, and that will give you so much uh, information? Yeah. I have patients on usually on five grams of creatine, but I have them anywhere from three grams to 15 grams. There's a good number of studies that uh, it does increase your creatinine, especially if you're on certain medications. In fact, there is one case. This is a really interesting case study, easily accessible on Google Scholar, by the way. Someone was on, I can't remember if it was Bictarvi, but it was an HIV med with H-A-R-R-T. And their creatinine came back on a routine blood test and it was like seven. So they're like, oh, well, you're in kidney failure. You got to go get dialysis. Turns out that creatine occasionally just makes creatinine look very high with no renal damage whatsoever. As far as the form of, uh, were you asking about the carnitine next? No, uh, f- uh, fish oil. What do you, in terms of what you write, how high are you going with the fish oil? And are you a big, do you use a maker quant? Do you find that it's, it's usable information? I use omega quant. I like the intracellular or the RBC omega slightly better because you can't really study for that test as much, just kind of like A1C and glucose. So I don't think that everyone has to have it. Even today, I had a patient that you know does not have many omega-3s in the diet, also does not take an omega supplement. So uh, we chose to not do that blood test. I think that usually costs a little over 50 bucks. So it's not a super expensive test, but it can add up, especially if you're doing it several times a year. So in that case, we just chose to supplement with omegas and then check to see the response. If there's a patient with like brain injury or high triglycerides, then I probably will go ahead and check just to get a baseline. As far as the dose, I believe the highest dose I have someone on is 12 grams a day of icosapentethyl, which is a specific type of EPA, a prescription form. And that indication would be hypertriglyceridemia. Um, I don't think everybody needs really high amounts. I am a fan to have them refined as much as possible because other fish oils, including omega-3s, are linked with a risk of arrhythmia, specifically AFib, which can uh, be quite concerning. So it can lead to like strokes and things like that. Although omegas, specifically EPA, can also be mild blood thinners. So really, um, even though it's a very natural supplement, once you're on a dose of more than about two grams a day, you should really talk to your doctor about it. Exactly. Now, um, are you a fan? I mean, I know you get exercise with no increases that sleep mate, perfect sleep between every, that's how to get another topic for another day in terms of the benefits of sleep. We talked about will help boost testosterone. Have you tried things like red light or ashwagandha or shalaji with people who are into, or those three that you three or four that you mentioned really your go-tos initially before you're talking prescription medication? Yeah, I've tried those in many patients and actually I've tried them myself as well. She legit, uh, I'm definitely a fan of. However, it has, it's kind of like a, this might be a really Kansas term from Kansas. It's like the shotgun of testosterone boosters. There's so many like compounds with pharmacodynamic effects other than just fulvic acid in it. So I do think it's helpful and worst case scenario, it probably pulls some tau tangles out of your brain. So I think it's pretty safe as well. As far as like red light, cold therapy is actually my go-to before that kind of depends on the person. If you have varicose veins in the testes, also known as varicocele, then I would say you're a better candidate for cold light than red light. 
So that other question that we always, I always get asked and want your opinion and is in terms of estrogen, how important, especially in a man, is what their estrogen level is to you when they're either natural or either when they're on some type of either natural or just or prescription testosterone. Are you following that? Are you putting patients on some type of aromatase inhibitor initially? Are you like, would men need estrogen? Where do you fall on that spectrum in terms of estrogen in men? I like estrogen in men to be as high as possible without any side effects. And that includes just uh, how the individual feels subjectively as well, assuming that it can be reasonably attributed to the estrogen levels. If it's going to be very low, so this would usually be in someone who's natural, again, someone who has slightly lower testosterone, so less conversion, to get an accurate level. And you don't always need a really, really accurate level, but to get an accurate one, you need to get an LCMS or really an equilibrium ultrafiltration, also known as equilibrium dialysis, rather than, else, rather than an ECLIA, which is a type of amino assay. It's not a terrible test, but it's definitely a lot better at low levels. And a good rule of thumb is in picograms per milliliter, you want your total estradiol to be about two to three times higher than your free T in nanograms per deciliter. For example, if your free T is 10, you want your estradiol to be around 20 to 30 total. Occasionally, I'll also check a free estradiol to see how much estrogen is not bound to SHBG. And occasionally, I'll also check other estrogens as well. Occasionally, I'll even check like Dutch tests um, to look at estrogen metabolism and GI tests to look at beta-glucuronidase. First of all, you have people, everybody now going to be going back to their high school chemistry book and learning what picograms are and nanograms are to know where they are. Um, no, I mean, for people who don't know, a Dutch test is a urine test for hormones, probably the most accurate urine hormone test that's out there, and it can give a lot of great information. There are tons of good GI tests. I'm not sure if there's different brands out there, depending on, and I'm in Manhattan, they're all banned, so that's a whole other story for another day. But any place but New York, you can get all the stool tests that you want, and they give a lot of vital information. Um, that's another, another story for another day. I know we're running uh, close to the end of your time here, so I want to, so in terms of females, and uh, last question really would be in terms of, again, females and testosterone. Are you looking at that in females I assume you see a broad, I know you see a broad range of patients in their twenties. I unfortunately see a lot of patients, I'm sure you do too, unfortunately, who they're on the band, okay, here's some birth control pills, let's totally suppress your hormones. You don't, even though you really need them, which I don't understand. What is, how are you looking at women and testosterone, but secondarily, are you a proponent for, and are you working to try to get their female hormones maximized or optimized? In general, testosterone in women is about three to four times higher than their estradiol. So unit for unit, if you convert them to the same units, their testosterone is much higher. Yes, you definitely want to optimize it. About half of it comes from the ovary and about half of it comes from the adrenal. So during the perimenopausal time, the fecus cells in the ovary often stop producing testosterone. And there is a huge variation in how much testosterone women produce from their adrenals. So if it happens to be a female that does not produce much, it is very difficult to naturally optimize their testosterone after menopause. Now, sometimes other androgens like DHEA can kind of take over this activity and then be converted intracellularly. Dr. Fanand Labri is the scientist who like looked into this intrachronology of DHEA conversion into androgens and found that this is one of the very important processes to maintain 
a female's bone mass and lean body mass into older ages, especially after menopause. So whether or not this is done, like hopefully naturally if possible or exogenously, a good rule of thumb is around the perimenopausal time is to track those labs very closely. And then if you need to start a hormone replacement therapy as a female, do it as soon after menopause as possible, because that's when you get your most bang for the buck and the least side effects as well. One last question, then I'll let you go. So for women who, again, I get asked this question all the time, and it comes down to functional versus traditional. Are you a believer in traditional hormone replacement versus bioidentical? Do you find, what is your preference and recommendation to patients? My preference 99% of the time is bioidentical hormone replacement. I'm not against other synthetics. The way I think of COCPs, which is birth control pills, I think of that as synthetic hormone replacement. Thanks for coming on, Dr. Gillette. I appreciate you toughing it out. So let patients know how they can find you, check you out. I mean, listen to you on you. A lot of great podcasts are out there besides this one, of course. So how can they find you and get your information? My main hub is on Instagram. It is Kyle Gillette MD and I'm at Gillette Health on all other platforms. Thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. You got to put a lot of great information out there and you break it down for these perfect metaphors. Thank you. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a biohacker, or an athlete, if you're ready to take the next steps to optimize your life, visit drpaulvin.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-U-L-V-I-N.com. com.